Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Calvary Baptist Church. It's great to be with you to worship God together today. We've worshiped Him in music, uh, in the liturgy, and now we'll worship Him in the preached word. But starting off, let me ask you something. What is the difference between a promise and a legal contract? A promise and a law. And I ask this because this is, this is what this passage is really all about. And, and maybe you haven't thought about this before. Maybe it seems a little obscure, but it actually has to do with the entire overall arching theme of the Bible. Tim Keller has a great illustration. Say I were to offer you $1,000. I promise that I had $1,000 right here, right here in my wallet, I don't actually, uh, that I would give to you today after the service. No tricks, no fine print, no strings attached. Let's say I were to promise you $1,000, and I got it right up here with me with your name on it. What do you have to do to get it? And perhaps at first you might not understand why. You might not even believe it, but nonetheless, the $1,000 is a promise. I'm promising to give it to you, no strings attached, and so all you have to do to receive $1,000 is believe that I will keep my promise. But if instead you think, nah, this is just some gimmick to see how gullible I am or something, then you won't get it. But let's take it a step further. Maybe, maybe you're in debt and $1,000 right now could really alleviate some pressure, but you've been hurt in the past by people who have swindled you, or cheated you, or stole from you, and you don't really know if you can trust anybody anymore. And so my promise of $1,000, no questions asked, sounds like just another scheme to hurt you. You might not want to walk up here, up all the way here and take it from me. Or even if I came down to you and, and, and offered it right to you, perhaps you'd be so skeptical and so hurt from the past to think that it wasn't even real. I could do all these things, and yet, if you don't trust me, if you don't believe me, then you won't get it. But it still stands that all you have to do to get the money is to believe my promise. But if, on the other hand, I say to you, I'll give you $1,000 to paint my fence then that's law. That's exchanging one thing for another. It's saying, I'll do this for you on the condition that you do this. I'll give you $1,000 on the condition that you paint my fence. That's law. That's a business contract. There are strings attached. And that's the difference between a promise and a law. And this is important because not only does this passage, not only does this epistle but rather the entirety of Scripture rests on this concept. God has made a promise, a promise that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ, a promise that's offered to you today if you will but only believe it. Now, the last time I was up here, we looked at Galatians 3, 10 to 14, and talked all about how Christ became a curse for us that we might be blessed. And today we're looking at Galatians 3, 15 to 18, 
And the overall theme of this passage, if you're taking notes, the overall theme of this passage is this. God never breaks his promises. God never breaks his promises. And this passage is really a continuation in Paul's argument from the previous passage. There he talked about how the blessing promised to Abraham is given to not only Jews, but but Gentiles, all of us as well. And so we can partake in that promise, which is salvation. And here today we see how Paul proves why this is true from the Old Testament. So a quick recap, remember, the entire book of Galatians was written to the churches of Galatia by Paul to address some false teaching that had been believed amongst them. They have begun to think that Jesus is not enough for them, but that instead they must revert back to following all of the Torah, the law of Moses. But Paul will point out here that long before the law of Moses even came around, God made a promise to Abraham. A promise that is not made void by the law, a promise that is fulfilled in Christ. So take take a look at our passage for today. Verse 15 says this, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. A covenant, by the way, essentially a promise, and Paul says here that even, even with a man-made covenant, it's understood that once it has been ratified or confirmed, basically, you do not annul it or add to it. It is what it is. Phil Riken says that according to the Greeks, a will could not be repealed or revoked. It could not even be modified once it had been properly registered and deposited at the public record office. He says as well that the Jews had a special procedure for making an irrevocable testament prior to death, and that we even see this in play in the parable of the prodigal son when he asks his father for the share of his inheritance. So perhaps other things could be altered, but not covenants. And we see examples like this throughout the Bible, like in Genesis 21, Abraham makes a covenant with Abimelech. 1 Samuel 18, David makes a covenant with Jonathan. And these promises were not trite, they meant something. And so if, as Paul says right here, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Even with a man-made covenant, and this is what he's saying, well then how much more will God not annul nor add to, but keep his promises that he has made to us? then how much more should we trust God, the ultimate and final authority, when he himself is the one making the promise? And yet, how many of us find it easier to trust ourselves than we do God? Or even how many of us find it easier to trust the devil than we do God, like when we believe the lie of temptation and give into it? God has made all sorts of promises in his word. He promises to never leave us or forsake us. Or the the promise of Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. So there are many promises that God has made, but the one that Paul is talking about here in Galatians is one in particular. It is his ultimate 
promise that through Abraham, the Messiah, who is Jesus, will come to save his people. That's the ultimate promise. And if we believe that, then we'll find rest and stability and peace throughout all the many trials and joys, sufferings and triumphs of life. I remember the exact day when I was called to ministry, June 23rd, 2020, and the previous couple of years leading up to that point had been an exercise of pushing the call to ministry out of my head simply because I did not believe that God would take care of me. I just finished up at music school. Part of me wanted to be a musician, but part of me also wanted to be a police officer or maybe a lawyer, I didn't really know. And yet, though I had pushed it to the back of my mind, I couldn't get ministry completely out of my head. I wanted success from a worldly standpoint. I wanted to impress, I wanted a reputation, and really, more than anything, I just wanted to live my life the way I wanted to live it. I had my own plan, my own will, for my life. I didn't want to be a pastor because that meant that I had to rely on God too much. It means that I have to rely on the generosity of all of you to help pay my bills. But I want it to be comfortable and at ease. Forgetting one of the promises of God in Matthew 6.26 where Jesus says, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? So after charting all these plans for my life, I did find it ironic that one of the earliest sermons I would preach at Calvary would be from James 4.13-17, to part of which says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. I'd failed to trust that God would provide. I'd failed to believe in verse 15 in our passage today. Even with a man-made covenant, No one annuls it or adds to it once it had been ratified. And so then, if this is true with man, if this is true with humanity, how much more will God keep his promises to us? Church, God never breaks his promises. Let's look at the next verse, verse 16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, God never breaks his promise. What's the ultimate promise? Jesus Christ and the salvation he offers to all. And and here we see this in play. And it may seem a little strange at first, but Paul is crafting his argument very carefully. We see that promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. Just take a look at Genesis 22. God says to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And so God says that the offspring of Abraham will be like the sand of the seashore. In other words, there's going to be a lot. And yet in our passage, Paul says, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, 
but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. He seems to be making this rather strange argument that because the word offspring is in the singular and not the plural, therefore it's referring to a single individual, namely Christ. And if you're anything like me, the first time I read this, you're probably thinking to yourself, that's a, that's a pretty dumb argument. I mean, you're just grasping at straws now, Paul, right? Because after all, the word offspring, to be technical about it, we have to be a little technical, is a collective noun, meaning I can write it in the singular and still be referring to a multitude of people, right? Just like the words family or class or staff. And in Genesis 22, that's exactly what happens. God says, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. Last time I checked on the seashore, there's lots of sand, go figure. Unless you're in Newfoundland, there's nothing. And in the sky, right? In the sky, there's lots of stars. And so what is Paul talking about here? The answer is that this is not an either or kind of situation. But as one preacher notes, it's both and. It is both. It refers to Abraham's descendants as well as singularly to Christ. So when promising to multiply Abraham's offspring, it's obviously plural because God does that. That's the Israelites. Remember, God never breaks his promises. He, he promises land to Abraham's descendants as well. This is obviously not land meant for one person alone, but for a whole nation of people, Israel. But what about, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed? Did this happen? Did Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, bless all the nations of the earth? Certainly they were meant to be different from the cultures around them, which was supposed to be a testimony to other peoples for God, but did this really happen? This month as a church, we're reading through the book of Genesis. Next month in a couple days is John, by the way. And later on this year, we'll read through Joshua, Judges, Exodus. Last year we read through First and Second Samuel, and we see in all these books Israel's rebellion against God. And more than being a testimony to the nations around them, they adopt the same sins and practices of those very nations. And so it makes you wonder, makes you scratch your head, how exactly were the nations of the earth blessed by this? Well, what if, as many have noted, when reading the third part of this promise to Abraham in Genesis 22:18, we look at it like this. And in your offspring, who is Christ, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. That makes more sense. You see, all the nations of the earth are blessed because of Christ. And this interpretation, by the way, it's not without precedent. Paul is not just rereading this to fit into his theological framework, but look at God speaking to the serpent regarding Eve's offspring, Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Eve's offspring is referred to as he, one person, and who is it exactly? Who is it exactly that will ultimately crush the head of the serpent who is Satan? It's not the Israelites. It's not us. It could be only one man, Jesus Christ. One commentator says that the promised offspring of Eve is the same as the promised offspring of Abraham, which is the same as the promised offspring who would sit on the throne of David. It's all pointing to one person, Jesus Christ. And so Paul is exactly right to say, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Because the promise of God to Abraham, that through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed, only find their true fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If it were any other way, if it were any other way, it would appear that God does not keep his promises. Because of Christ, we know that the theme of this passage to be true. God never breaks his promises. Let's jump down to verses 17 and 18. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now let's remember the overall context of this letter again. Why is Paul writing this letter? Because false teachers have come into the Galatian churches and have begun to preach things contrary to the gospel. They're essentially saying, in order to be a Christian, Jesus isn't enough. Great starting point, but you're going to need some more. You need to go get circumcised. You need to keep the dietary restrictions. Follow all the rules of the law of Moses. And I think one preacher has a great way of putting it. It says that Paul's theology and the false teachers known as the Judaizers theology are not simply two slightly different takes on Christianity. These are not two different denominational views in the same faith. No, rather these are two different religions entirely. Completely different. He, he says the false teacher's theology was if you wanted salvation, you needed to first, number one, believe in Jesus Christ. And second, obey God's law. Then you could be saved. But Paul is saying and has been saying from the very beginning that you must first believe in Jesus Christ. And not merely intellectual belief in the way we say, I believe in the existence of God. No, a trusting belief. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's number one and then you're saved. And as a result of that, then you'll be obedient to God. Where the Judaizers were saying faith plus obedience equals salvation, Paul was saying faith that leads to salvation equals obedience. Right? These are two different systems of belief entirely. Right? I, I hear it all the time. All world religions are superficially different, but mostly all the same. They all believe in the golden rule. 
No, this is, these are two different contradictory systems of belief. And that changes how you live. You don't have to earn your way to God and always be at risk of falling out of his grace. No, you are saved by grace alone. And so I have the freedom to live for him. Because he hasn't just forgiven me, he's adopted me as his son. The same love that he has for Christ, he has for me. Remember the illustration from the beginning. If I have $1,000 up here, and I promise to give it to you, all you have to do to receive it is to believe. It's true. You just got to trust that it's true. If you think I'm just fooling you for a joke and you don't believe me, well, then you won't get it. But all you have to do to take hold of the $1,000 is believe the promise. That's what Paul is saying faith in Jesus Christ is like. God has made a promise to every single one of us here today, every single person in the world. He says, if you believe, if you trust in my son, Jesus Christ, you will be saved. I will give you everlasting life, unending joy, mercies that are new every morning, and I will be your God. You can choose not to believe it's true, and then you won't receive the promise, but all you have to do for that promise to be yours is to trust it. That's what Paul is saying. The false teachers here, on the other hand, they've come in and they've said, no, 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 if you want this, you're going to have to work for it. It's a law, it's a business contract for them. Like the illustration, it's like me giving you the thousand dollars to paint my fence. You give me something and I'll give you something in return. And that's all well and good in the business world and human interactions and we trade goods and services and so on, but tell me, what exactly are you going to offer God? He's the creator of the entirety of the universe. Do you have something that he doesn't already own? Are you going to surprise him by impressing him? This, after all, was the entire point that the law was given in the first place. The reason, the reason that the law of Moses exists was to make us see our inability to keep the law. Jesus says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. But remember what Steve Dahl reminded us of, that there has never been a single nanosecond in any of our lives in which we have truly kept that commandment. Because despite all our attempts, we are always tainted with sin. The law and doing good deeds was never meant to be the pathway to God. Paul says the law of Moses wasn't even put in place until 430 years after a promise had been given already to Abraham. Salvation is not by the law, not by rule keeping, not by good works, but by promise. I saw recently a clip of a man who was not a Christian say something like this. He said, I just can't bring myself to believe the Christian gospel. I can't see how salvation could be attained 
without hard work. And this is the hang-up for many people. Jesus says, believe in me. Trust in me. And we just shrug it off and say, yeah, 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 but what do I need to do? And we don't realize the arrogance of that. There's nothing you can do. That's why the law exists. It's so stringent. The law is so stringent that it demands 100% perfection. And therefore, no one can keep it. And this revelation that we can't keep it is meant to drive us to our knees and cry out, then who can be saved? Who? And in enters Jesus, who meets us in our sorrow, our pain, our desperation, and says, you cannot keep the law, but I have kept it for you. You are not righteous, but I am righteous for you. You could not pay the price for your sin, but I have paid it for you. You are unable to approach God, but through me, you can. Your iniquity is great, but my mercy is more. Only believe in me, and you will not perish but have everlasting life. This is who Jesus is, the promised offspring of Abraham, who offers us himself, not by law, but by promise. And as a poem of the great Puritan writer, John Bunyan says, run, run, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Remember, God never breaks his promises. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. If God made a promise to Abraham and then 430 years later said, actually, I'm gonna change that now, that God would not be one who keeps his promises. Rather, he would be a liar. But remember, if even a man-made covenant is inerasable, then how much more with God? And this right here is quite interesting. In the Old Testament, right, we see covenants being established between other groups of people, like Abraham and Abimelech, for example, that each make oaths to one another. Right? But when God makes his covenant with Abraham, what do we see? And I think Tim Keller does a brilliant job of explaining this. Look at Genesis 15 where God makes this covenant. God says to Abraham, bring me a heifer three years old, 
a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. Now, to our 21st century ears, this may sound really strange, but similarly to how we sign our names to things like contracts and wills today, which perhaps thousands of years ago, that may sound strange to them. In Abraham's time, this is what they did to ratify or establish something. So they slaughter the animals and then cut them in half and lay one half of the animal on this side, the other on the other side. And, and Keller explains that normally the two people who are exchanging the oaths will walk between the two halves, which is meant to mean, basically, if I don't fulfill my oath to you, may I end up like these slaughtered animals. That's what it means. That's the, the, that's the imagery there that's right in front of their eyes. And so God commands Abraham to slaughter these animals, and he cuts them in half. Abraham already knows what to do with them, lays them opposite one another, but then notice what happens. It says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. God caused this smoking firepot and flaming torch to pass between the animals. But notice something. Abraham doesn't pass between the animals. Remember, in a covenant, you normally have two separate parties. They each agree to fulfill their side of the oath, this person that side of the oath. They both walk together through the animals to make this oath to one another. But here, God is the only one that passes between the animals. What, what does this mean? Why do you think that is? It means, it means one thing. It means promise. It doesn't mean, hey, I'll give you $1,000 as long as you paint my fence. No, God tells Abraham, I will fulfill my covenant to you no matter what you do. There's no stipulations on Abraham at all. God does it all. All Abraham has to do is believe it. And so you see now how, how the gospel is not just something that's found in the New Testament. No, it's weaved throughout every corner of Scripture. It's God's plan of salvation. That's why Paul is able to say earlier in Galatians 3, and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Abraham's the man of faith because he simply believed God. That's why Genesis 15, 6 says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And so church, what does, what does all this mean for us? Well, if this is true, that God never breaks his promises, then it means that you can trust God. And that's not a trivial thing. You can trust him in the midst of your depression you can trust him in the midst of your addiction. You can trust him in the midst of your anxiety about the future. 
your loss, your suffering, your disease, your fear of failure, and he offers you himself. Now, just because you trust him doesn't mean you'll live a fairy tale life. He doesn't promise health and wealth and ease and comfort. He promises something far greater and eternally lasting than that. Fellowship with him. Fellowship with him. The joy that comes from knowing Christ, because he is eternal, because he is infinite, far surpasses the joy of anything else that the world offers, because all those things have a time limit. All of them are finite. God is the only one who is eternal. And so do you believe the promise of Christ this morning? If you genuinely don't, then I pray you'll hear these words from John 3, 17 and 18. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. And yet, please, don't skip over the warning in the very next line, but whoever does not believe it is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. God has carved out a path by which we may commune with him, but it is not through good deeds or rule-keeping or trying your best to be a good person. No, that is all law, that's all contractual. God has made a way through promise, and it is only through believing in Jesus Christ. And finally, if you know Christ this morning, or for our people getting baptized, as you make this public declaration of allegiance to Christ, and how God has kept his promises to you through it all, I pray you, I pray every Christian here would meditate on this passage and take it Take it, and like Jacob wrestling with God, don't let it go until it blesses you. Don't just read the Bible to check a list. Don't let it go until it actually grips your heart. Calvary, what promises are you struggling to believe today? How are you finding it difficult to rest in God's faithfulness today? As Christians in this church, we're quick to confess all the right doctrines, we love the five solas, and yet how quickly I can react to life circumstances, just like the Israelites in the desert, right, who three days, three days after God parted the Red Sea in front of their eyes, they're complaining, we have no water, would you just bring us out of Egypt so you could, we could die here, God? And yet despite our unfaithfulness, God is always faithful. So take our passage today. See how God never breaks his promises. See how he sealed his covenant with Abraham. He may have told Abraham to sacrifice a heifer and a goat and a ram, but 2,000 years later, it would be the lamb of God who would be the ultimate sacrifice in fulfillment of that first covenant. What it took for God to keep his promises to never break them was for Christ to suffer, 
for his back to be scourged with whips, for his head to be pierced, for his name to be mocked, his humanity forsaken by God, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, his victory over death, and redemption secured for us. That is the extent to which he went to keep his promises. How then could he not care for us? How then could we not trust him with our lives today? Let's pray. Father, we've heard from your word today, and I pray the church will hear a better sermon than I could ever preach. I pray that your Holy Spirit could work in ways and move in our hearts and stir us up with affections for you. I pray, God, that if we believe and trust in you today, that we may look at this passage and be encouraged that despite the valleys of life, despite the setbacks, despite the suffering, that the joy that you offer us is eternal, your mercies are new every morning, and that your promises are always true. And I pray if anyone's here and does not know you, that they may see your love and your grace and your mercy and may trust in the promises that you have made, that you never break, but always keep. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.